Betting. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of the Bet with the Best podcast. Its mission is to explore better ways to bet on races, to seek out new, successful players, and to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. The Bet with the Best podcast is sponsored by Amwager, an ADW built by horse players for horse players. Speed, power, and ease of use are at the core of Amwager, designed to give players the information and tools they need to quickly make anything from a simple win bet to a complex, structured, superfecta, or pick five wager. When you combine that with data and pool updates that are up to 60 times faster than the competition, Amwager is the clear winner in wagering on races online. Those are just a few of the many special features that Amwager has to offer, along with live video and race replays, free integrated form to win past performance information, conditional wagering, and true odds, which are a prediction of off odds based on all available pool data. That and much more. Amwager is licensed and operated in the U.S., and best of all, they will actually pay you to play. If you sign up now and deposit and bet $150, you will earn a $150 lump sum bonus. So there is no reason not to give Amwager a try. If you want to bet with the best, then you need the best tools to wager with. You need Amwager. Welcome to episode 16 of the Bet with the Best podcast. Joining us this week is Dick Girardi, who has been a longtime member of the Buyer Speed Figure team and has also been reporting on horse racing for many years. He's an accomplished horse player and contest player and once finished third in the BCBC. Hello, Dick. How's it going? I'm great, Chris. How about you? Uh, great. Uh, you know, Breeders' Cup, just a few weeks off. I'm really looking forward to heading down to beautiful Santa Anita and watching all the best horses run and competing in the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. So, yeah, this is a good time of year to be a horse player. Yeah, it's definitely our Super Bowl coming up. Yeah, I just uh, always look forward to that first week end in November. And, you know, I've been preparing for it all year because that is definitely the Super Bowl. And the good news is you don't you don't have to win every game to get there. You just have to win a few to get there. So, yeah, look, looking forward to uh, uh, that Friday and Saturday for sure. Will you be traveling down to California for the Breeders' Cup? Yeah, I'm not going to come this year. Uh, I made a decision a couple of years ago, Chris, uh, after Del Mar. I thought I was really well prepared for the contest. I mean, I was. I'd done all the work, but I was not happy with how I executed the plan at all. Felt like I was distracted. And the last two years, I've strictly played from home and had a lot more success in the build-up contest to the Breeders' Cup. Just feel like it's there's just I can look up things at home if I if I forget something I can do it there so yeah I'm going to play from home and I will really miss being at Santa Anita because it's one of my favorite places on earth 
And I actually told the, the people involved with the contest, they were asking if I was coming this year. I said, no, I'm not going to come. I said, but if I win, I 100% promise I will come to Del Mar next year. Yeah, well, I know, you know, both Santa Anita and Del Mar are great places to go. And I agree with you totally that you have a lot more distractions on site. But, you know, as a horse of player slash fan, it just doesn't get better than the Breeders' Cup. I mean, it's just so cool to be there with all the, you know, the top horses from all over the world. Like you said, it's in, but, but certainly, I think just in terms of playing like in the BCBC, you're probably better off at home. But boy, you're, you're giving up a lot when you don't go, especially Santa Anita, uh, where the weather's usually, you know, perfect. I couldn't agree more. I actually stayed right in Arcadia in 2019. And that was actually the year I finished third in the in the contest. And I would either walk to the track or Uber over there. I mean, it's like five minutes. And yeah, I went to the Derby a few times. It's just an awesome thing. And I covered the event, um, everyone from 1986 till I left the Philadelphia Daily News in 2017. I might have missed one or two. Uh, so yeah, you're right. It's an awesome event to be at, and I've had the good fortune to be there for more than 30 times. Uh, so I will miss being there, but in in uh, deference to chance, better chances of winning the contest, <laughs> I think I, for me, I think it's at home. And right now, that's, that's that's a little more important than being in California. Not that I don't love being in Southern California, because I do. Yeah, and as someone like you who's been there and covered it for many years, absolutely. But like I'm thinking of somebody who maybe wins an entry in the BCBC. It's the first time they've ever won. Sure. Okay. Um, yep. You know, I'd say go go to the event. You know, it's it it's worth it. Um, you know, if you've been there a few times, then I then you know certainly you know your strategy of um, you know trying to maximize your chances of doing well in the contest by staying home makes a lot of sense. But if you've never been, uh, to me, you know the Breeders' Cup, and you're a racing fan, you know the Breeders' Cup. It really is the Super Bowl of horse racing. And you can say there's some negative things about it, um, especially nowadays with the lack of horses running and stuff. But I mean, to, the actual event itself is great, and it's great live, you know, because you can get up close. One thing nice about horse racing, it's a sport where you can really get close to the stars. You don't necessarily, you're not necessarily able to touch them, but, you know, you can really get close, and it, it really is kind of fun. And, and you don't get the energy of the crowd and everything. So I'd encourage people. You know, try to make at least one trip to the Breeders' Cup if you can. No, I, I would agree, Chris, especially if you're a first-timer in the contest. Much more fun to be there. And, and look, you may learn some stuff there that you might not have learned anywhere else. Uh, that's the one thing I'll miss. I mean, I like roaming the backstretch and talking to trainers, many of whom I know and I've covered. And now I'm in a little different uh, mode. I'm out there picking their brains to try to see if they can help me uh, anywhere in the contest. But I did that before. It wasn't like I was not doing it when I was working. But, yeah, definitely go, especially at Santa Anita or Del Mar. You cannot go wrong. Not that Keeneland's not great. I mean, anywhere you go, Churchill or anywhere they do it is fine. But it's always nice to know you're going to have good weather in Southern California. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get started and let uh, – so you can start sharing some of – what you've learned covering the races and being part of the buyer speed team and as a horse player. And um, since you've listened to the pod, you know, I usually start things off with what I call the horse player origin story, where you kind of describe how you got involved in the game and then how that evolved to, to where you are today. So why don't you share with the listeners your horse player origin story? 
So I grew up in Baltimore, and my first racetrack experience was the Pimlico. One of my older brothers took me out there one day, and I made the mistake of sitting in an open seat that had a newspaper on it. And people with older racetrackers will know that means you don't sit in that seat, and which I quickly found out from one of the old guys who told me to get out. Uh, first Preakness I ever saw was 1973 Secretariat as a young kid. Watched it from the infield, bet $50 to win and showed my friends, look, I'm going to win a fortune here. Well, I got back 65. It was three to 10. Uh, I eventually went to the University of Maryland, uh, was a majored in journalism, minored in history, but I really had a double minor, uh, Chris, in poker. Uh, and my poker friends one night said, you know what? You need to go to the racetrack. And I went to the track with them a couple of times. It might have been Rosecroft, the harness track, or uh, one of the Timonium. I remember being there early. Ocean Downs, a little uh, small uh, harness track outside of Ocean City, Maryland, where I used to go on summer vacations. And I, I knew a little bit about it. You know, I'd watch the Derby every year, but I wasn't brought up in it. I, I didn't know any people in it, but it was fascinating. Um, and the gambling part of it immediately intrigued me, but I, I didn't know enough to, I was never making any serious bets. I was just out there more as like a, uh, somebody trying to understand it. And I was far, far from understanding much of any of it. And after I graduated, I got more and more interested in, in being there. And then I think the two, there were two books that really influenced me dramatically and meeting some friends. And Andy Byers Picking Winners, which came out, I believe, in 1975, and about the same time, Steve Davidowitz's Betting Thoroughbreds. Uh, they're they're probably yeah, I don't want to say they're the best ever, but they're up there as far. If you want to understand the game, uh, those are books well worth reading. I know Steve updated his book, and reading Andy's book is when I first started got, getting fascinated with speed figures and. If you read Picking Winners, Andy has suggested people that you go at that time to the Salima Room in the Bowie, Maryland Library, where they had old chart books. I did what I was instructed to do, went there, uh, constructed parallel time charts for all the Maryland tracks where I was starting to gamble. But you know, again, I didn't really know much. And from that, I start. I had my own set of speed figures in the I want to say around 1977, 78, where very few people had speed figures at that time. They obviously weren't published until the early 90s, first in racing times, and now, of course, in the DRF for 30 years. Um, and uh, long about that time, I met Andy and became a pretty successful horse player. And Chris, one of my great fortunes was the day I was in the Salima room at the Bowie Library. I met two people who had become lifelong friends. Ray Tannehill, who was a basketball player, what was then Towson State College, now Towson University, and Jerry McIntosh, who went on to work for the TRPB and became an FBI agent, of all things. Uh, and they became two of my horse-playing buddies. And Ray was one of the – anybody in Maryland knows Ray, uh, one of the all-time legendary horse players in Maryland. Unfortunately, Ray passed away in 2015. But we kind of teamed up, and they were there for the same reason I, I was, to learn about – buyer speed figures. And that's really, that's really the origin story for me about how I got involved in the game. And as a journalism major, I said, you know what, I'm going to write for a newspaper at some point. Uh, so I eventually got a, a job at a little paper in Baltimore. So it was a one year thing it was in the early eighties. Now keep in mind, I've been going to the racetrack now every day for like five or six years. 
and basically uh, getting by by my wits. I didn't have a job. My only job was going to the track and gambling. Uh, and I thought it would be about time that I might get, need to get a real job. So I worked there for a year, handicapping, writing stories. Uh, and then, I, fortunately for me, Garden State Park was going to open in 19, April of 1985. And there was an opening at the Philadelphia Daily News. They wanted a full-time horse racing writer. They didn't have one. Uh, so that's why I got hired. And I was there for 33 years. I wrote 7,000 stories. Uh, I left in December of 2017, covered 31 derbies in a row, all the triple crown races, a lot of the big races around the country. That's when newspapers had unlimited budgets. Uh, I also, in in the time I wasn't covering horse racing, I was covering college basketball. So I would leave the Breeders' Cup, then cover college basketball right through the Final Four. I covered 25 Final Fours for the paper. Uh, and all the time, of course, I'm playing horses, but not as intensely after a while because I just didn't have the time. Uh, but yeah, that that's kind of the story from the beginning uh, all the way through my newspaper run. And I'm still doing I, I have a weekly TV show that I do, and uh, it's produced by my buddy Bruce Casella. Danny Gibson is the host that's on in the Philadelphia market. We've actually been on for 30 years. Uh, I do some writing still for their website. As you said, along with Randy Moss, Mark Hopkins, Andy Byer, I'm a, a charter member of the Byer Speed Figures team. Uh, we started together in the mid '80s, where we were just kind of sharing figures, and then over time, uh, we uh, branched out. And as I said, originally they were in the Racing Times, and now, of course, they've been in DRF for 30 years. And we have a number of other members of our squad now that we cover every racetrack in the country. But yeah, that that is my story up to 2023. So that's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about those early years when you you made your own figures. You had a couple of uh, partners or at least cohorts um, that you were pretty intensely playing, racing on a daily basis. You know, what did you learn from that experience? You know, how did how did you mature as a horse player during those years before you got the paper gig and and kind of went down that career path? Right. I, I learned um, first how to, how to manage the frustration of losing off it, because that's just the nature of the game. You will lose off. And I, I picked that up fairly quickly that you just can't get angry because all that does is make you make dumb mistakes and try to chase money you've already lost. And there's uh, it's always tomorrow. There's always another race. And And back then, the speed figures were so new. I remember sitting with people in the grandstand at the Maryland tracks, whether it's uh, Timoni and Bowie, uh, Laurel or Pimlico. And a lot of them were just saying, well, wait a second, this, uh, this horse that ran for 5,000 last time, he can't win for 7,500. He has no class. I, d- I didn't really understand what they were talking about because I was looking at the numbers that said not only could the horse run for 7,500, the $5,000 horse was faster, and that just made so much more sense to me than like, well, he ran for this price and now he's running for this price. So that gave me an education and it, and it was Andy and it was his speed figures and understanding them that gave me an education that I really couldn't have gotten anywhere else. And I felt like I was really fortunate that I got into the game at that point, because if I'd gotten into the game earlier, I probably would have talked like a lot of those people did, because that's what people thought at the time. There were actually people that told me that, Speed doesn't matter. Times don't matter. And what? I mean, that just seems such a foreign concept to me. Uh, Why wouldn't times matter? And of course, 
times by themselves don't matter. They matter in the context of the, of the racing surface that the horses are running on, which is ultimately what speed figures are. They, they're developed uh, that way. But yeah, I learned that. I learned, I learned how to bet. Uh, I got a better sense of how to frame a bet. You find a horse you like. Is it, is it an exact? Is it a double? Is it a win bet? You know what is it? Where you, where can you maximize your opinion in the best possible way? And I became an exacta player early, and I'm an exacta player to this day. I think because you can actually see the prices, it gives you an edge. To me, you you don't have in tries. Uh, you know, obviously, that's changed a little bit. We're going to get into it later with the the computer assisted wagering and all, where the prices have ch- tendency these days to have undergo dramatic late changes. But that wasn't the case back then. And it was funny, the TV monitors at the track, not like now where we can look at our phones and see it, they were they were a precious tool. Uh, and I used to often have to go to the TV guys at the different tracks in Maryland, and I knew them all pretty well. I say, you you forgot to put the exacta prices up for this race. I, I knew I knew where their booth was because I wanted to see them. So yeah, that that early on, uh, yeah, I made a I made a pretty significant score in March March or April of 1978. Uh, just from watching races at Bowie, and then they moved to Pimlico, which was a dramatically different surface. At Bowie, it was more of a deep closers track. Pimlico was a a less deep live rail, loose on the lead kind of a track. And I had a horse actually trained by Bud Delp. Your spectacular bid was a two-year-old uh, and ridden by Ronnie Franklin, who was then kind of an unknown apprentice named Tiger Castle. I knew he was going to win. It was a. It was called the, believe it or not, the J. Edgar Hoover handicap, named after uh, the F, former FBI director. And I knew he was going to win, and I just tried to come up with the exacta for like three days, and I finally hit on it. Uh, it was a horse called Kahootek. I bet two hundred dollars in a race, which at the time was a lot of money for me. And I had the exacta for a hundred. It paid sixty-one eighty, so I won three thousand, which was a boatload of money at the time. And in the late seventies, you could buy houses for not a dramatic amount of money. And I remember my friends uh, walked me to my car that day because I still I was too cheap to pay to park. I was parked across anybody knows Pimlico across Northern Parkway in the Mount Washington neighborhood. And the next day, I started parking at Pimlico. <laughs> you you earned the, you earned the right to pay to park, I guess. Huh? <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a lot there, so I want to follow up on a few things. Um, it sounds like early on, the the speed figure edge that's really what you relied on in your handicapping. Did you factor much else into it, or was it really looking for the fastest horse that you knew was fastest, and that most of the people at the track may not know? Is that kind of what you really focused on early on? That That is correct. I was a very unsophisticated in a lot of the game. Uh, yeah, you learn as you go. But yeah, I just kept thinking, well, this this number, and yeah, I remember some specific horses. There was a horse named Bold Phantom that I'll never forget that, that today would be two to five. And it, in this race, he was like, I don't know, three or four to one and Ray and, and Jerry and all, all of us were all betting on them and we're all making figures separately, but we're all coming up essentially with the same answers. And I remember sitting at home and with, as Andy recommended in his book with the red flare pen. And I would, I would first, I'd go over the day's previous day's card and, and jot down my figures. And then you had to do everything by hand. I'd write the, and I had a, a book that would go back for several meets 
you have to write the numbers by hand and I would write the last three numbers of every horse. And I was, as I was doing that and you had to subtract the beaten lengths, it was a pretty cumbersome process. I'm already formulating in my mind as I'm going, oh, look at this. I can't believe this horse has this kind of edge. And I probably wasn't sophisticated enough to look at what the morning line was at that time. And, and the morning line makers would have, you know, they wouldn't know anything about speed figures at that time, but yes, that was absolutely what I was doing. And it was, it was a gold mine uh, early on. I wish, you know, if I could go back in time, I wish they had more bets like they have now to pick threes, pick four, pick fives. And I wish that I had a much bigger bankroll uh, because I, I actually kept some, I still have them in one of my file cabinets. I kept some ledger books from those days. I'd have meets where I was having an ROI of like 60 and 70% uh, winners. I mean, it was just astonishing, but I wasn't betting enough money for it to, I wasn't changing my life at that point because I just didn't have enough capital behind it. But yeah, those, those days are long gone. I haven't had days like, I haven't had years like that, but yeah, back then it was, it was doable because you had something that nobody else had. Yeah. And that, that's something I, I, we've talked about far on the podcast, you know, people say, well, you know, it's so it's so much better now because you get the buyer's fee, speed figures in the DRF. You know, you don't have to do that work. But the fact that you had to do the work is how you got the edge. Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it and you wouldn't have that edge. But there weren't that many people putting in that work or even knew what to do. And by putting in that effort, you know, you had that big advantage. And and you know that we've seen that kind of evolution a lot in racing, you know, with all kinds of things like trips, you know, it used to be really hard to get trip notes because you didn't have any, unless you got it live or the replay right after the race on the track, or maybe the nightly replay on TV for some of the major tracks, you know, that's the only time you could, could watch a race and take notes. And so, it was a big advantage to have that over most of the players. But now, you know, you click on a, you know, in a DRF on, on the horse's race and you can look at all its races right there as you're handicapping the race. So, I mean, there's all kinds of those examples where those edges, um, they come and they go. And a lot of times you have to work hard early on. Um, but eventually the rest of the world catches up. And like you said, the trick is when you have that big edge to really, you know, leverage and take advantage of it to the max because you know it's not going to last forever. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. I, I've told this story a number of times, uh, Chris. At the '97 Final Four, Kentucky was going for their second straight national title. It actually turned out they were going to get two out of three years. Um, we were in Indianapolis, and Rick Pitino, who I've since become good friends with, everybody knows Rick's a big racetrack guy. He said, somebody asked him, about, hey, you won the title in 96, you're back in the final four and everything's good, right? He says, he had this line, he says, if it's not broke, break it, right? Everybody says, if it's not broke, don't fix it. He thought the exact opposite and I'll never forget it. And he was 100% right. It's exactly what you were just saying, because if you always do the same thing, you're going to get passed because everything is going to evolve. So like back then it was just, it was such a cool deal because as you said, people either didn't know how to do it, weren't willing to spend the time, uh, didn't understand the significance of figures. Uh, Andy's book again is a phenomenal primer. And even to this day, it, re it reads like it could have been written last week. It's great stuff. Uh, but yeah, that is exactly right, Chris. Every everything does change. And if you don't evolve with it 
and certainly I've evolved as a player over the years that you're going to, you're going to get past. And when you get past, it's hard to catch up. So how did you meet Andy Beyer and get involved in, and did he just, you just meet him at the track and he knew you were making figures using his methodology and, and you guys decided to start splitting up the work or something. How did that, how did that evolve? Right. So neither he nor I remember the precise time. My guess is I probably saw him one day at Pimlico and just sort of introduced myself and, and said I, I was a you know horse player and I read your book and hey, thanks. And I'm doing some speed figures. And then probably a, when I first started working in Baltimore for the little paper I worked for for a year, um, I would have been in press boxes there, like the uh, 83, 84, 1983, 84 range. Certainly would have spent some time with Andy there. And then when I got the job in Philadelphia, we had become friends. And Mark Hopkins and Andy are the two partners in, in the rest of us, including Randy Moss and a number of others, worked for them. And, and what the four of us did back then was Randy was living in Arkansas. Uh, Mark was either New York or Florida. And of course, Andy lived in Washington, D.C., but traveled a lot for the Washington Post. We just owned circuits and maybe a, a, another circuit here or there. If they were coming to Florida, Andy might do something from Chicago. We just shared that data with each race or maybe a horse was shipping from one track to another. So it was strictly word of mouth. And it, one of the things I remember clearly is in I got to the paper in uh, February of 1985 and Garden State Park opened up April 1 of 85. And that first Saturday night, they ran the Cherry Hill Mile, a relatively unknown three-year-old at the time named Spendabuck, not only won, but just won like a wild horse. And I was creating speed figures from scratch. This was a track that hadn't run in seven years. It had burned down in the late 70s. It was a totally new surface. And it took me a couple of weeks to get it to where I felt comfortable, but I knew immediately how fast Spendabuck was. And I remember, I know I called Andy specifically. I said, hey, the fastest three-year-old in the country is here at Garden State Park. He's probably a little skeptical at that moment. Then he came back and did the same thing at the Garden State Starks Stakes, and the rest, of course, is history. Uh, he, he ran him off their feet in the 1985 Derby. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was kind of the origin of it. And then, um, we it, again, the racing times when Steve Christ went there running at Steve, of course, a longtime figure guy, he he was the guy who first broached the possibility of hey, getting these figures actually published. So it was it was great for the team. People got to see our work, but as you said, it certainly hurt the prices that we were getting when we were you know we were the ones doing it, and everybody else didn't get to see it. I'm glad you mentioned Spendabuck. He's probably one of the most brilliantly fast horses many people never heard of. I mean. That that horse on his game, like the, his derby, was probably as impressive as any horse except for Secretariat that I can think of. I mean, he just, like you said, ran them off his their feet. He was very fast. My kind of horse. I mean, I love I love lone speed, and I love it the faster they go. And I loved Angel Cordero on a speed horse, where they open up five instead of staying one length ahead and open out out sprint the closers. Uh, that the, all the horses that were chasing them were dead by the quarter pole that day. Uh, but yeah, he was he was something. And if you get a chance. It's interesting. We just did a I do an annual. Uh, Pennsylvania Derby Day show live in Philadelphia. We do a two-hour show on, on local TV here. And Lafitte Pinkai came in to host it this year. 
And I said, I said to some people who had never seen it, I said, you got to see Lafitte's dad in the 85 Jersey Derby on Spend a Buck and go on YouTube and it, you just call it 1985 Jersey Derby. Uh, Cordero had won the, won the Derby, but he couldn't ride the horse in the, in the Jersey Derby. It was a $2 million bonus. So they called him the master to ride him. And Lafitte, this horse had nothing at the quarter pole, Chris. They had gone so fast and he'd been challenged by a Lucas horse named Huddle Up. He, he was dead. And Lafitte Pinkai carried him last quarter mile. And at that point, that was the biggest single person in North American history. It was 2.6 million. And I remember going out to do a story on Lafitte when he was closing on uh, on Bill Shoemaker's record in the late 90s. And uh, I said, Lafitte, you still got that money? He says, I don't have all the money. He says, but I got a really nice car from that day. <laughs> so he, he did well. But yeah, spend a buck. You're right. He, people don't remember him now. But yeah, look up his paper. It, it, was, it was an awesome. And he was just fast. I mean, and fast out of the gate. And he kept running fast. And Lafitte was the best ever at carrying a horse to the wire that didn't have anything left. I mean, no he was. That question. was he, he was the strongest rider of all time. There's no rider that's ever been as strong as he was. Yeah, and there's and there's no rider born that would have won that Jersey Derby except Lafitte and Kai Jr. He's the only one that could have done it. And plus, uh, as covering you're covering the race of the time. You know, that was a huge story because Spendabuck, you know, it was ahead of his time. He was skipping the Preakness and not even taking yep. a shot of the Triple Crown to go for that big, big dollar bonus. That was a big controversy at it, the time. It, it so was. that must have been interesting. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I was covering it. I'd been at the paper like six weeks. And keep in mind, I, I lived my whole life in Maryland. I lived in Baltimore. So, you know, I knew the Preakness. I'd been to a number of the Preaknesses and they were like outraged uh, that he wasn't coming to the Preakness. What do you mean you're going to? Garden State Park to run for a bonus, but it changed the structure of the Triple Crown not long after that, the purses. So they had, that was uh, Robert Brennan at the new Garden State Park that kind of changed the whole whole way the Triple Crown was run. I mean, you weren't going to do anything about the Derby. Everybody wants to go to the Derby, but yeah, that's, you know, now everybody's passing everything. It's, the whole sport has changed, but yeah, yeah back then, <laughs> I mean, people, people were just crazed. That, what do you mean he's not going to the Preakness? Like, that's not possible. But yeah, and there, and I, I feel confident I wrote it because I was probably about my cynical best at that point. I said there were 2.6 million reasons why he ain't going to the Preakness. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, uh, that was quite the controversy at the time. Um, so let's talk a little about the betting part because you said you became an exacta player. And so talk to talk to a little bit about either back then or now, you know, what it is that you look for, you know, in terms of playing that exacta, when do you know you want to play an exacta? Is it when you have a key horse or when you don't like the favorite or both? I mean, how do you zero in on, you know, a race where you really start licking your chops and, 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 and looking at how you're going to play the exacta? Yeah, I, I would say generally, if, if I love a horse to win and I don't like the favorite, I'm going to be more interested but for me, when I'm firing at an exacto or really almost any kind of a race, I have to see the race. Uh, when I can see it beforehand, like I know, you know where this horse is going to be, that horse is going to be, what it's going to mean, how it's going to affect the uh, in in the race, and how it's going to affect what's going to happen in the stretch and the finish. That's when I'm more likely to to play an exacto and play it hard because uh, it's it's all about for these horses, um, 
are they comfortable or not? Uh, certain horses are comfortable on the lead. Certain horses are comfortable outside. Uh, maybe the track is playing a certain way. You put all of that together, and then there are moments where you just see it. It's crystal clear in your mind. And when you're getting decent prices, that's that's the time when you have to just fire at it. Uh, so yeah, there's no one way. Um, look, I've played I played races not often because you just need so much luck. I played races where I think all the speed horses are going to just collapse, and and you generally are all almost always going to get a better price because of that. Where I'll I'll take box two or three closers uh, because they're all going to be fifteen or twenty to one, and you maybe can hit something. You don't have to be that smart; you can hit something. But again, you have to be able to see the race beforehand. And I, I, I've, I've said this to people for years, Chris, but if there's one race left on earth that I, I got to bet for whatever I need to get to the finish line here. I want a lone speed, a couple of other speed horses chasing that I know are going to get tired and a horse who can make up ground on the stretch. That's the best exacta there is. And I have cashed more of them than anything else. It's interesting you say that because um, Mike Maloney, who was one of the prior guests on the Bet with the Best Cup podcast, he had a similar, he said something similar that he really likes a situation where, you know, he has a horse on top, he thinks a dominant speed horse, right? Like, I think is what you're describing. Yep. And then um, the the second and third choices are also speed horses that he thinks are just, he, that, that are just going to, you know, spit the bit because they can't keep up with the, the strong favorite. And then he's looking for a horse, like you said, to sort of clunk up um, at a price and to get an exact and maybe the try with a couple of them. You know, that's he said that's one of his like, you know, like you said, go to scenarios that he looks for. Yeah, the, the game it's it, look, it's like a massive chessboard where every move has been made. Uh, and you've seen it. We've all seen it. We, we know what these races look like. We've seen the meltdown paces. We've seen the tracks where the rail is no good, like at Del Mar for a couple of the recent Breeders' Cups, and and you adapt to that. But the the moves have been made. It's your job it, it, when you look at a race to figure out what is this chess move, what it what is what is this scenario that I've already seen, and is it going to happen again in this race? Uh, and if so, can you put something together, frame a bet in such a way that you can make yourself some money? But yeah, for me, I. It, if I if I can't see a race, I mean, I've cashed bets where I didn't see it, it and certainly races don't go exactly like you see them, and, and you might get lucky and win anyway. Uh, but almost always, when I'm making a really really big bet, I I got I got to see it first. I, I just have to be able to understand exactly what I'm going to see. And there there have been races that have gone, I mean, exactly like I saw it. And you you know, and you could still get beat just because it's the nature of the game. Uh, but yeah, that's that for me is it. Uh, if if you can see it, bet it. So um, on that, do you are you like um, do you size your bets? So when you make a bet, is there like a standard bet you make? Is there if you when would you bet more than that, or when do you decide to pass or just make an action play? I mean, do you have? any kind of methodology behind how you size the, the bets you make when you, when you like the horse, a race where you really see it clearly versus mm -hmm. one where maybe you don't see it quite as clearly, but you think there might be some edge. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the more clearly I see it, the more I'm going to bet. Obviously, price dependent, um, circumstance dependent, all of that. But yeah, there was uh, just a, I'll give you a recent example on um, on PA Derby Day. It was a real sloppy track. Uh, speed was good. You wanted to be up near the front, and the two the two big stake races, the the two Grade Ones, were later in the day, the Cotillion and then the P- Pennsylvania Derby, and it, it was the pace scenario was so easy to see in both of those races. I mean, Ceiling Crusher was near the rail. She was coming from California. She, California horses, when they come east, are, you, you almost add a couple of lengths anyway to them because they're just faster than, than they are everywhere because that's how they run the races. So she was easily to the front, and she had a, she basically had to beat one horse and a really good horse in the Kentucky Oaks winner, pretty mischievous. It was, it was very talented, but what everything was against her it just wasn't the right scenario for her and you're getting three to one on ceiling crusher that was a really easy bet for me i was actually playing a i was playing a contest i was doing a live tv show and playing a contest during the commercial breaks so i I bet all my money to win on ceiling crusher and then the exact same scenario came up in the next race with saudi crown i mean he was well he, he also had the figures over everybody i mean he was he had 105 and 106, and there was nobody else in the field that could do that. And he was going to be loose in the lead. And with I didn't think with much competition. And so, yeah, I basically made a, a two-bet two bet win parlay and ended up finishing second in the contest to some guy. I don't know what his name is. Was it Chris something or another? I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that was uh, – I'm glad you I didn't don't, quite bet any more than you did on that because I didn't beat you by much in that contest. I didn't have I didn't have any more. I would have bet it, but yeah, <laughs> I bet my three hundred. That that turned I don't know what thirteen hundred or whatever. And I bet it all in the even money shot, but yeah, I didn't have quite enough to catch you. I tried to catch you on the last race, but I was wrong. Uh, but yeah, I mean that that's the, those are the kind of scenarios you just live for. And it's fun, all week long. I had just seen those races so clearly. And, and look, sometimes your horse will get left or. Some 50 to one shot, I'll go out there because the trainer sends the rider on a crazy mission. I mean, that's going to happen and that's, you just got to deal with it. But I didn't see that happening. And in, in those particular races, it didn't happen. So, but yeah, those are the races you want to bet the most money on. And and there will be occasions where you're locked in on the exact two. I didn't happen to be in that scenario. I thought that the win parlay was going to be good enough to get me in the hunt as it turned out, it was good enough to get second to uh to a guy who was better than me on the day chris i don't know what you were betting but you you were at a big total early as i recall yeah i was you know or i just got some results you know it was surprising because i didn't have a lot of confidence that was the only day i played uh that that track in the entire year um and i usually like turf racing and they only ran one turf race and they took the other one off uh, at the last minute, and I hadn't—I had anticipated they weren't going to run at all on the turf. So I found out they were, and so I scrambled and started looking at the races to handicap them for the turf, you know. And I actually hit the one turf race they ran on the turf, and then uh, right after that, they—they they, um, <laughs> canceled the next one. So I had to handicap that for back on the dirt. It was kind of a crazy day. The weather definitely yeah. affected it. So I just—I tracked that one up as pretty lucky. So I, I won't take a lot of credit wrong from a skill standpoint. I, yeah, I was scrambling from the beginning, but you know, sometimes you get the results, like you said, sometimes you don't. Yep. And in yep. those contests, 
you know, it pays to be aggressive. So I was kind of aggressive right out of the gate and it worked out well. I barely held on um, <laughs> good, uh, because you were for, charging fast. Yeah, yeah, I was charging, but I, I, I hit, I was, uh, I tired at the eighth pole. I had no finish at all, but I made a good move to the eighth pole. <laughs> you made a big, you definitely made a, a eye-catching move there, turning for home. <laughs> just, just missed, just missed. Um, so, uh, I, a couple questions though, you, you, you exactly talked about the win and you haven't really mentioned horizontal bets much, you know, doubles, pick fives, pick sixes, pick threes. Are you primarily a win exacta player or do you, you look at those horizontal pools or, you know, just what else, if anything else do you look at from a betting standpoint? Yeah. Over time, all of it. Um, I was certainly in the, in the era of the, the good pick six, the one with the, not the, not the thing they have at, uh, uh, too many tracks these days. I'm thrilled that Santa Anita has gone back to the regular pick six like Naira has done. Uh, yeah, I was certainly a, a pick six player back in the day. Loved playing the old Breeders' Cup pick six. Um, I had a few through the years, um, uh, mostly with Ray, my my buddy partner. We had one at, uh, at Fairplex, the, the, a track we've been following for people that's now closed. It's uh, out in Pomona, east of uh, east of Santa Anita. It's actually, they have a fair out there every year, but it's a track Ray loved. And you know, it's a year, made like 2006. We, we literally were playing, watching it every day. And we had, we had a pick six of fairly late night meet for like, I don't know, it was like 78,000 or something, uh, which was nice. It was funny. We uh, we looked at the play independently and Ray was in Baltimore and I was, I was up in uh, Philadelphia where I live now. And then we would talk about it and go over and think about our tickets and we both had no clue on the last race and it was a 10 horse race. We, we rarely did this, but we made it into a pick five and just hope we got lucky on the last race. And we were, we were live to anywhere from, I want to say like 10,000 to like the whole pool. And we ended up, I think with it, like an eight to one shot that won and got a 78. Uh, but that's a nice place to be and going into the last leg of the pick six and having an all. Uh, but yeah, I certainly played some pick sixes, but more recently as I've been playing, I'm, I'm much more of a contest player. And obviously there's no, those bets don't exist in the contest except for doubles. So yeah, I, I've even more become like a win exact, a double guy. Cause I, I'd love playing the contest cause they're just, they're just fun. Uh, and, and it's, it's a battle of wits and what's the number it's going to take to win and, you know, who's willing to fire at the different time and are, are you going to be ready right with your specific plays? Uh, so yeah, that, in that respect, and I, I don't play every day anymore. I haven't for years. I, I just, I don't have the time uh, and nor do I have the concentration that I had when I was first starting out. Um, so yeah, I'll just find specific contests that I'll, that I'll play. And I probably the last couple of years, maybe played 25, five or so each year uh so maybe every other weekend and i'll be playing every weekend from here to the breeders cup seeing if i can i have one bcbc spot up see if i can get another one so how do you you mentioned a little bit how you approach the contest but like what's your strategy typically on a live bankroll contest i mean are you trying to go all in on one or two races or you know what's how, how do you usually approach that and if you want to talk about even the bcbc where you had your success you finished third. I think it was at Del Mar, right? It, it was at, at Santa the, Anita in 20, 2019. Oh, Santa Anita, okay. Yep. Yes. So, so yeah, talk I a little get bit about yeah, 
Sure. Now, generally, what I try to do is set a goal for a number that I think it's going to take. And and the BCBC, I think uh, I've talked to Marshall Graham about this. And his his goal and mine is similar. How am I going to get my seventy five hundred to a hundred thousand? Now, it might take more in the end. It might take less, but and then I then I kind of go backward and just try to figure out, uh, you know, what are the play or plays that can get me there and then have a plan A and a plan B. So I'm not a big cap out early guy. I, I, I like I want to give myself as many opportunities as possible. And then as you're farther along in the contest and if you're not doing well and your bankroll is diminishing, you might have a, a, a play late that even with a thousand or a couple thousand, if it's the right play can get you in the hunt. So yeah, I try, I try to hold the bankroll, uh, for if I have an opinion, if I don't have any opinion, I'll, I'll, I'll let it go at some point. And it gets to the point in the contest where the numbers are getting away from you and you just got to, you got to make some decisions, but yeah, I don't have any hard and fast rules. Um, there was a year, the one that got away from me was 2018 at Churchill. I had a, bet a $4,000 cold double on the first day to the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies turf. Uh, Chad Brown out of horse, it couldn't lose whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, and she didn't lose. And I bet her into Jaywalk, John Services, Philly, who I knew a lot about. And she, Jaywalk was like five to one, but the double was paying 18. So I had it for 4,000. Plus I got the exacta. So I was up to 50. And in retrospect, I ended up betting almost all of it to win on a on a Baffert sprinter in the Philly and Mare's Brent uh, Marley's Freedom, I want to say, is the name of the horse. And whatever could go wrong did go wrong in the race. Um, it ended up finishing fourth, got beat like a half a length. Uh, but in retrospect, I wish I'd have held it longer because I had some good opinions later in the day. I actually hit the turf pretty good. But it's all about, you know, when when do you think you can get your money in? What are you trying to get to? Uh, but, yeah, that that's what I'd like, to, I'd like to have a do-over on that one if I could. But they don't let you have that, unfortunately. No, as a horse player, I think all of us would like to have a few <laughs> two hours for oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about like in the Breeders' Cup Bain Challenge? You have quite a few races you have to bet. You have these minimum bets. Yep. I don't remember. Yep. I think it's three plays on day one now. They reduced it and then six or seven on day two. How do you deal with the minimums if you don't have like, say, on day two? You you only have two or three strong opinions, but you got to play seven races or something. You know what do you do on those minimum races? Just out of curiosity, yeah. how do you deal with those? Yeah, could, one of two things. If if I have absolutely no opinion, I mean zero, none, I'll try to find a horse I feel pretty confident is going to run in the top three and just bet bet the horse to show, just to hold the bankroll. I don't think that's any novel idea. I think a lot of people do that, but I found that I'd rather even if I have a marginal opinion, I'd rather use that, I think it's 700 on day two, uh, to maybe hit something, because then when you have your big opinions, all of a sudden your bankroll just got bigger, and losing 700 really isn't that huge a deal when you got 7,500, or, or whatever the minimum's gonna be this year. But yeah, I've, I've had some success with that. Uh, and just, you, you wanna put yourself in a position, maybe there's, a, maybe there's an exacta that, 
you know, it's got like a 1% chance, but it's paying 500. And if you bet it for a 50, you know, all of a sudden your bankroll just blew up and now you like a two to one shot. You can bet the horse to win at 60, 70,000, whatever the number you got to. So I, I kind of look at it that way, but it, it for me, it just comes down to what's the, what's the scenario that's going to get me where I think I need to go. Um, and what's the best way to get there. And there's so many decisions and you're guaranteed to make some bad decisions just because it's the nature of the game. You just hope that you make more good ones than bad ones. Uh, and you learn from experience. Certainly again, like I said, in 2018, in retrospect, I had so many good opinions behind that Philly and mare sprint. I probably just should have waited and taken three or four chances to get where I wanted to go rather than just one. The more chances you get, the, the, the odds increase on the possibility of you being right. Uh, you could, I mean, the only horse I, I've seen running the Breeders' Cup in recent times where I was willing to do what the winner of last year's contest did, was bet whatever I had was flight one. Uh, I, you know, I, I thought that strategy was great. I think they had a bankroll of like 97 or 98, maybe 100,000 bet at all, and you get 44% on your money. And you're and you know that the prize money is so big. All of a sudden, instead of getting two to five on flight line, you're getting six, seven, eight to one, which you know it's not going to happen in real life. But that only happens in the BCBC. That's one of the appeals, obviously, of it is the prize money. So you um you might take the the chip shot show bet if there's a standout, and but you'd kind of like to take a shot with the minimum bet, maybe to build your bankroll, even if you don't have a strong opinion, it sounds like. Yeah. I think the, the more chances you give yourself um, to get a bankroll. Yes. Again, unless maybe if there's only like two plays I like on the two days, then I might just line up and, and fire at those two. Like I did it year in 2018 where I really thought I had an edge on jaywalk um, at five to one. And it, it they gave you a free space to get there, which made a five to one into a, an eight and a half to one. I think that I want to say the double paid like 18 something. I mean, it's a little bit of a gamble. Look, if the, if the Chad Brown Philly doesn't get there, but I mean, she was going to have to fall. Newspaper of record was her name. She was going to have to fall down not to win. She didn't fall down and she was clear. She was loose on the lead. It was, there was never going to be any trouble in the race. Um, so yeah, if I see a, if I see a place like that, sure, I'll, I'll fire. Uh, and it's also a good thing. If you can get a second entry, it gives you it gives you obviously even more chances to do something. I, I had two entries for the first time last year. Uh, I'd had a good year in a lot of the prelims, and I was just terrible in the contest. I couldn't do anything right. I could have had ten entries last year, and I wasn't going to win. Well, uh, yeah, we've all been there too. Um, so <laughs> you, you know, the highs and the lows. Oh, yeah. uh, but like. Just like uh, in the regular betting in the contest, you really need to take advantage of when it is your day because prize money, especially for a contest like BCBC, pretty top heavy. So it does kind of make sense to really go for it if you're in contention. Um, so you know, that's certainly the right strategy. So you have a couple of things that you do that are sort of different than most of the guests. So I kind of want to see how that factors in, if at all, to what you do as a horse player. And one is, you know, you're, you cover basketball at a high level and you've been doing it for many years. You know, it's a sport. Just curious, do you do any sports betting or just covering basketball in general? 
just the sport itself or betting on sports? Has any of that influenced the way you play horses? Good question. I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't bet sports. I'm I'm not really interested in the eleven to ten. Uh, you know, I like the exacto where you know it's paying eighty for eighty five dollars and you got it for a hundred. That's much more appealing to me than betting a hundred to win a hundred. So yeah, I don't bet sports, but yes, I, obviously I follow it. I, I know the games. Uh, one of my uh, one of my side gigs, and I've been doing this. It'll be twenty years coming up this year. I'm the radio analyst for Penn State men's basketball. Um, so I get to see, it's fun to get to see it up close from that perspective. And for years, and you know, I covered the Big Five in Philly, and I was sitting courtside when Chris Jenkins made the shot for Villanova in 2016 in Houston to win the championship against North Carolina. So I mean, that gives me a feel for like being around coaches, and the great coaches are like the great trainers. Uh, you get to know who they are, how they do it, how they prepare their teams. It, it, that part of it is very, very similar very analogous uh you know to me like brick patino is the, is the best at getting his teams ready for the big moments like that's why he was such a great tournament coach you know like some of the great trainers of today and of yesteryear are great at getting their horses up for the the big race so yeah in that standpoint yes it it does help but not gambling wise because i just i'm not a, i'm not a sports better I, I i often have opinions i mean I, I'll, I'll talk about it with people and they'll ask me an opinion and i'll give them an opinion but yeah, just not not something that appeals to me. What what about the process? You're still making figures for the buyer team even today, and I know uh, you know. I think you do the the circuit there, like with the Pennsylvania tracks and stuff. At, while you're making those figures every day, how does that sort of inform your handicapping? Not you know, in a way different than like people who use them, but by making them, does that give you insight? that you wouldn't otherwise have um, as a player? I think it does. Uh, yeah, I do. Like in the summertime, I'll do more tracks. I do the, uh, a bunch of the tracks in Pennsylvania, and I do the Ohio Circuit. I also do Charlestown. Um, and we've over the years, it, it changes up a little bit. Like Andy and Mark Hopkins, again, who own the company, they do the major tracks. Uh, Randy Moss, as I said, does a bunch of others. And again, we have several other uh, compatriots that work with us, but I, I think a little bit, I think it does give you a little bit of an edge and, and look, we have a database, uh, that we use, um, that from DRF, uh, that we can go back and, and see like what, I mean, you can see it now too on formulator people that, that, that use formulator on DRF, which is such a great tool. You can see it too, but yeah, I'll be able to see, let, let's say, uh, Andy's making the figure for the Kentucky Derby at Churchill's one of his circuits. I'll get to see how he did it, and I'll get a sense of, you know, w what might happen in the Preakness. Uh, so yeah, it, it is an edge for sure. Getting to see how the sausage is made, there's no, there's no question about that. Uh, and I, I think some of it may be subtle uh, that I'm not even sure I'm I'm doing it, but it's somewhere in the back of my brain. I'm saying, all right, I remember how this was done. I know what that track was like. You know, I knew what this variant was that particular day. Uh, so yeah, all of that maybe factors in into of making some final decisions on some on some races. So, do you think making figures today is more difficult or easier or the same than it was 20 or 30 years ago? And if if it more, is, you know, if it's go ahead. More, yeah, more difficult. Um, I wish I could explain exactly why. I mean, we were having a problem. I think it's been pretty well chronicled a couple of years ago where they put in these GPS, GMAX timing 
devices at tracks and and they were bad i mean they just were non-functional so uh randy and uh bob who works with us and me were having to time our tracks uh on this computer equipment and it was very time consuming to do uh so from that we don't have to do it anymore they've not they've alleviated that problem um but yeah from that standpoint it was harder it just it seems to me and i think i think anybody on the team would say the same thing bob weir's our other guy uh i wanted to mention um Anybody on our team would say that you see things now that maybe you wouldn't have seen 15 or 20 years ago, like form will dramatically improve, like there are certain trainers and you just go, you know, that can't happen. Uh, But it does happen and and you deal with it. I mean, buyer figures improving 30 points overnight. And then you'll see things like days of races that it just, it, it sometimes don't make any sense. I mean, when you, when you look at the whole day, you're supposed to be able to come up with a variant at the end of the day that is similar from race one to race nine. And there will just be days where there'll be a, an outlier or even two where you just can't figure out what the heck happened. And I don't remember that. Maybe that happened early on and I just don't remember it. But I think all of us would say it seems to be happening more often now. Why that is, whether it's track maintenance in the middle of a day or uh, so many other factors that I, I probably hadn't even considered, but you do see more outliers today where you have to, um, you know, I, I like to just make a variant and put down the numbers, but there are just days where you say, well, that number does not make any sense. So you try to make the best of, of what seems an impossible situation. You put a number in and then you put a little mark next to it and then you follow it and, and we'll change numbers after the fact if we have to, uh, I mean, there have been instances where that has happened. I know Andy wrote about it recently about a, a couple of ra- a race at Saratoga that led into the hopeful. Um, so that will happen. But yeah, I think it is a little, it's more, to me, it seems more difficult. Again, I think most of the partners would say the same thing. So you mentioned like you, you can see all of a sudden, maybe there's a trainer who gets hot, starts moving horses up dramatically in terms of their buyer figures. It would seem mm-hmm. like by doing the figures, you might have the jump on most players on spotting that, you know, before those horses start running back and they see the numbers and stuff. Um, do you find that at all? Um, does that, 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 that help that, you at all yeah, in that regard? hundred percent. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And one of the things I know I've talked to a, a number of my compatriots about this. And when I mentioned people I used to hang with it, at the Maryland tracks, I have to mention my friend, Mari Wolf, uh, and, and Mari's one of the great players and Mari and I sat together for years and we still talk a lot and I've certainly learned a lot from him. But yeah, you know, one of the things that I learned early on, when you see a horse who's, let's, let's say a horse is running 80, 80, 80, and then he runs like a 95, most people will go, well, that's a one-off. It, it's not real. I don't look at it that way. I look at it as, all right, something has changed, you know, as, as the trainer figured out something and it could be as easy as he, he changed the bit. He put blinkers on, he's a gelding. He's uh, it, it could be a things I'll, I'll never know. It could be he worked on the horse's teeth. Uh, it, it, there's so many things, but I'll say, you know what? Maybe that's what this horse is now. And if the horse comes back next time and is kind of being ignored because everybody says, well, that's not real, and that 95 is going to win, and you're getting 10 to 1, that's one of the great bets in horse racing. 
If you're getting six to five, run the other way. Here's an example. 2019 Breeders' Cup. It actually got me started that day where I got ended up finishing third. There's a horse from Parks trained by Carlos Guerrero. He's a terrific trainer named Spunder Run. And he'd been running. He was good. He run third in a Haskell. And I talked to the trainer before the race. I knew he really liked him. And he was running number, number, number. Then all of a sudden, he blew up in a race like a month before the Breeders' Cup got a 110. And people go, well, that, that that's not real. Well, I felt confident it was real because I knew the history. I knew the horse. And, of course, he ended up going off at 10 to 1 with Irad at the Breeders' Cup third mile and, and wired the field. And that kind of got me started to where I ended up having enough money to make a gigantic punch on the Breeders' Cup turf that year, which got me a total which was 60,000 ahead of the field going into the last race, which I thought might be enough. It turned out it was not enough. Well, that's interesting. So that was a number that you had made, right? The Spunder Run number? Actually, I wasn't. I actually was not doing parks that particular uh, moment. We, again, we switch them around sometimes, but that was Bob Weir was doing it. I remember texting Bob after the race. I said, the, the figures don't lie. Uh, but yeah, it, and it was, it was one, again, it, it, it kind of stuck out. But because I got 10 to 1, and I talked to Marshall about this too, that's why you have to bet because you're getting all the best of it. That might be who this horse is. And that 110 was the best figure in the race. But he was a horse from Parks trained by an unknown trainer nationally. I mean, nobody knew who Carlos Guerrero was. People said, what is this? What, you know, what is this? But <laughs> again, I had a bigger edge because I'm at Parks and I knew the trainer. Uh, and, and I knew the figure was live because a couple of horses had come back to run out of that race. And that's an edge we have also. I mean, you have it on formulator. You can go look at formulator. I'll tell you the same thing. But when you can go onto our database and look and see what horses have run out of that race and see what their numbers were, that's a pretty big edge. And I knew that the horses that had finished behind him had come back to confirm that the number was real. That gave me a tremendous amount of confidence. In fact, I was trying all day Friday to get to like 10,000. Because I was going to bet 10,000 to win on him at 10 to 1. I knew it was going to be 10 to 1 to get to 100, but I kept missing all day Friday. And I had such a, my bankroll had shrunk to such an extent that I ended up having to hit an exacta, which got me to a bankroll, which made me uh, make like four or five significant plays on day two. And unfortunately, the very last one I had was the one that hit the turf where I had bricks and mortar, who I thought was an absolute cinch in the in probably one of the worst Breeders' Cup turfs in history. All the good Europeans were home. And I came up with a fifty to one shot. This is hard to believe. Trained by Mandela and written by Flavian Pratt. That wouldn't happen today. Uh and that was the exact that came in. It paid one thirty seven and I had it for two thousand. I went from two thousand to hundred and thirty seven thousand in about two minutes. That's a nice score. Yeah, you have a lot. Mandela is saying for everything because uh, his his horse, Omaha Beach, was the way over bet favorite that gave you the ten to one on Spun to Run in that's the mile. So, yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, he was he was good to me that day. He finished second twice when I needed him to. With the other horse was United, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, United. I mean, it was, that's right. It was work. Yeah, because again, when I went back after Friday, it was, it was very discouraging because I, I just couldn't get anything right, and I just said, right, I laid out like four or five different plays that were possible and then thinking, all right, what do I need to get to the finish line? And that was really the last one that I had. I'd had a couple others earlier on that could have gotten me there too. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I conceded the race to bricks and mortar and then I'm, I'm just looking around and I kept crossing off horses. I said, I don't like that horse. 
you know, all the East Coast uh, turf horses, channel maker, all the channel horses, you just throw them out immediately. And and it was a bad year for Europeans. And I, I came on United because he had run one really good race out in California. And then his previous race after that was terrible. And I really couldn't figure out why. There was nothing on the video. I watched them. I watched XBTV workouts religiously prior to the Breeders' Cup, and his works were terrific. And then in the in the notes, and it, again, that's where there's edges everywhere. If you're willing to just sit down and look through things, in the Breeders' Cup notes, and I wouldn't have known this because I, I I didn't see Richard Mandel, and I don't even, I don't really even know him other than by reputation. He, somebody asked him what about the previous race, and he said the horse got sick. And I said, well, there you go. Now he's coming back to his prior form. He's 50 to one. I think that was the weekend where the whole country started to notice Flavie and Pratt. I mean, if you go back and watch the tapes of those two days, the Breeders' Cup, he was the best rider there. He was awesome. And he gave United, he almost gave United too good a ride. He almost won the damn race. I, I didn't have him second. People ask me afterwards, how many times do you have it the other way? I said, zero. <laughs> I like bricks and mortar over United. I didn't like it the other way. Well, that's good. That's a memorable score for sure. And at the, you did it at the right time. You just that was a winning score for the BCBC in many years too. So, and that it, was. Good. It, I think that it would have won. I think it would have won every other year. Uh, but as you know, once you get to that last race, you become a target. Uh, right. It, 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 and I two players that that passed me. I, I, I wasn't upset because you know, it was still a pretty nice score. But yeah, you you get that close. You, you want to win, but uh, hey, but if I'm in that spot again, and I like, and, and my other problem was I didn't like anything in the classic. I had zero opinions at all, and I wasn't sure I needed to bet. I didn't really, and I had made all the bets I needed to make at that point, so I just sat that out and hoped I could hold on. And uh, I was, I was, I was I took the lead at the eighth pole and, and tired right before the finish line. Yeah, that's that was still. That was a great job. I like you said, you can't be too unhappy about that. You'd love to win, but no, you, you went home with lots of bankroll and some prize money too. That made it um, certainly worth the trip for sure. The, the ride right, home, uh, let's, let's, early ride home was fine that week, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, it always makes it a little, the the flight home a lot easier for sure. Ride home. Um, so I'm gonna get into a few other topics that I like to try to cover if we could. Um, one is carryovers. Uh, it doesn't sound like you're a guy that chases like carryovers much, but uh, I'll ask the question anyway. Um, is that a part of your game or at or at all? It, it was a significant part. Um, it, it may be again, um, but like I, I, I know the New York circuit. I don't know it like the people that live it. I know it a little bit. I know the California circuit. I don't know it like you know people that that's what they do. So if there's a sig- couple of significant carryovers there, uh, like I played one, I was at Saratoga this year and played one. I, I was not very good at it, but yeah, I'll certainly play them. I, 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 I'm not going to play the, the, the Gulf stream and all those things. I just, even the mandatories, cause the CAW guys just, I mean, they just, they, they just kill the pools and you, you, you can't compete. So I don't play any of that, but the fact that they're, that you can play in New York and they're not involved is, is huge. And I think it, it, so yeah, I, I applaud those tracks for doing that, but yeah, there was a time, Chris, where I played that a lot, but I'd say I'm probably 80% now a contest player. And the rest of the time, if, if there's a horse I've been following, or I just happen to be at the track with some friends, 
yeah, I'll play some pick fours and pick fives and, and whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I have a couple of guys I meet once a year for Saratoga, once a year for Gulfstream. We'll just hang out at parks for the day uh, and we'll try to see if we can put something together and just mostly just having fun. But yeah, not, because I, I, I'm not comfortable if I, I, I don't ever bet big if I haven't done the work and, yeah, and, and the work for me is it's everything. And, and you got to be prepared if you do the work that know that you may not get rewarded because again, it's, it's the nature of the game, but yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't had many big scores through just stone luck. It's mostly just the days where you've done the work and yeah, you feel like you got something that maybe nobody else has. And yeah, I will, I would be more inclined to play like a pick six carryover or something. If there was, if there was a horse I'd been waiting on and I felt like I had a single uh, somewhere along the line because it, it starts to get so expensive if you can't lock in on a horse or two along the way. So carryovers kind of lead to the next question we've already touched on a little bit. You know, the computer teams and their influence, and they, you know, they definitely have grown in influence recently. Um, you know, how do you account for that, if at all? You know, how has that changed? your approach in any way um you know you talked about being an exacta player and seeing visibility of the pools and we know you know when exacta those odds can change dramatically you know after the gates are closed um how do you deal with that yeah i, I had one of them at, at keeneland this year in a contest that the, the exacta just i hit it and it just went down so much i would have bet it differently because I, I couldn't get where i wanted to go with the new price but yeah, Jim Goodman is the mutuals guy there. It is involved with uh, the BCBC. Good guy, knows the game. I told him, I said, Jim, you know, what happened here? And he explained it to me. And he, and he gave me some good advice. And this is advice I think I give everybody. The best way to get a sense of how exact it is or when prices will end up at one of these bigger tracks where the CAW guys are there, look at the will pays for the pick threes and the pick fours. Uh, they don't, they're not necessarily the doubles. Uh, it sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's more pick three and pick four. Uh, that'll give you a better line on how the next race is going to get bet, uh, the race that maybe you're interested in. So before you uh, go into your race, jot down what those will pays are. and Or just you can line up like say the, the four horse has the lowest pick three will pay. You can just put down four and put down to a likely favorite. Uh, and that, that'll give you a better sense of where it's all going to end up. It's not going to be perfect, but if you're thinking, oh my God, I can't believe this is going to pay 70. Well, it's not going to pay 70 because uh, they're going to hit it at some point. So you need to adjust And And I'm getting better at that. I've, I've only learned that in the last few months. Uh, I, I did see it happening over time, but it's happening more and more because that the influence and the influence in, includes like on, on Derby Day at Churchill. It certainly includes at Breeders' Cup where even those massive pulls because obviously the CAW guys are just, they have that last minute opportunity and just they just flood the pools with these massive amounts of money. So why do you think the pick three and pick four are more reliable indicators than the pick, the double? I'm just out of curiosity. The only thing I can guess is that they're playing pick threes and pick fours and not so much. Uh, I don't know why that is because, yeah. About them, it's do you not often the, the groups? You go ahead. I was gonna say, do you often see a disparity between the double will pays and the pick three and pick four? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. The doubles are 
they don't really help you as to what might be happening, or at least in my experience. Other people could experience it differently as the pick threes and pick fours. And, and I think it's just because for whatever reason, um, the CAW guys are more into the longer bet, the threes, the fours, the fives, than, than, the, than the double. Um, so, yes, I have seen it. Again, I haven't done a, a, a study on it, but I think if somebody could sit down with, with all that, I, I think that would probably bear out over time that that's the case. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll bet you that's something that many of the listeners haven't considered doing. So uh, I kind of look at them all, um, but I haven't really kind of been biased towards the, the you know the longer picks. So I'm gonna start paying a little more attention to that and see. You could be onto something there. Um, every yeah, little it, bit helps. It wasn't a, against... yeah, yeah, it wasn't original with me. Uh, Mari Wolf told me about it. And Jim Goodman, who sees this all the time, also told me about it. He said that's that's just a good way to get a sense uh, of what's going to happen because it, it, we've all seen these dramatic changes in the odds. And and I understand why people have questions about it all when after the race starts, the horse goes from nine to one to five to one, and, and he's loose in the lead and he wins by five. I mean, I get all that, but a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it can be explained by these uh, by these will pays if you take a look at it. Yeah, you mentioned Maury a couple of times. Yeah, he's he's a fountain of knowledge, and we actually have had him as a guest on Bet with the Best in the past, and a mutual friend. Um, indeed, he's when he when he talks, you should listen because he's got a lot of information that he's willing to share, and he's had a lot yeah, of success he, in the game. He, he he has, and like I said, when I I first started out, we he we probably started at about the same time, and yeah, there were there were years that would go by where we you know, we were at the track together every day, and yeah, I certainly learned I learned a lot more from him than he learned from me. Uh, but yeah, great and a, and great people, as you said, and a good friend to this day. Um, you mentioned a little about keeping ledgers in the back in the day. Do you still keep uh-huh. records on your wagering, and if so, what what kind of records, and how does that help you? I, I don't uh, because it's all uh, 99% of my betting now is, is is online. So I can just go back and look at it anytime I want. As I said, like 80% is on contest in contests where it's all, it's all in black and white. So yeah, I don't, I do not. Uh, I mean, there, there were, there were years uh, in my twenties and thirties where I was at the track. I mean, there was no day at the track. I was not in attendance um, unless they were closed. Uh, or got or got canceled. Uh, so I kept records of everything back then. Uh, I mean, I had like now you'll see like a, a trainer's percentage first time off a claim. It's right there in DRF. I kept those records on little note cards. Uh, and there was a guy, a really unknown trainer back in Maryland, a guy named Frank Calvo, who had this insane record second time off the claim. And I feel fairly sure I was the only person at the track that knew it. Uh, because every horse that he ran, I, I jotted down the result. And over time, you build up a, your own database. Uh, and, and it was very crude. It was pre-computers. It was pre a lot of things. Uh, but yeah, back in back in the day, I had these little index cards for every trainer in Maryland and, and what they did in certain situations. A great, another great example of how um, it, you'd say, oh, well, it's easier now because you can just get that right out of formulator. But you 
you don't get the edge you once had um, when you had to do the work and you might be one of only a few people that realized, you know, that that stat. So yeah, just another great yeah, example of how. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's different today, Chris, but it's also if if you're willing to sit down with formulator and, and watch replays and and get a feel for what's happened to these horses and you know what was you know what was their and the word i use is comfort how comfortable were was this horse in his last race versus how comfortable he's going to be in this race that's all still there that, i mean that's independent work that's not something that's not anywhere printed right you still got to go do it um and like when i'm playing these contests i don't it, look everybody's got their own way of doing it there's no right or wrong way but i'll try to lock in on two or three races and then just spend all my time on them i know i'm not going to be an expert on 10 i'd like to be an expert on a couple and you know, i'll do an overview and then i'll go all right this is the one where i think i might have something and i might by the time i'm finished looking at it go, you know what i really didn't have anything uh but it, yeah it's still out there but it, it's just it's just are you willing to put in the time and and do you have the experience and the background to be able to take that time and make it into a bet? You know, what's the right number? Because the, ultimately, that's that's the bottom line of all this. You can do all the work in the world, and if if you can't bet it correctly, it doesn't matter what you know. It's you know, it's it's an easy game to keep scoring, right? Either you had more money than you started with, you didn't. Yeah, and you made a good point. You're looking at things a little more subtle than might show up in a running line on the PPs, right? Like you said, horse exactly. comfort versus got stopped, yep. and you know, and and so uh, that's the way you can still get an edge. You've got to be looking for something that's not uh, everyone else isn't looking for, isn't already readily available in the you know past performances of the horse. I, that's exactly right. I mean, there there is a the horse the other day uh, that on past performances it was okay but then you went and you go and look at the race the previous race and then you match it up with, with the races that the horse runs when he's good when he gets his best numbers and you go well he couldn't get that number in that race but this is a scenario that's going to give him a chance to run back to that number and that number can win well that's a bet uh, that that's the kind of play you want to get involved in, especially if they're hidden a little bit and maybe you can get a price. Uh, but there, there are times I can generally predict what kind about what price I'm going to get in different races, but there's always surprises where you think a horse is going to be three to one. He shows up at six to five and you're thinking, well, I guess I wasn't the only one to see this. Or maybe the opposite, right? You think, oh, this yeah, horse that, is going to That happens bet. too. Oh, 100%. So you might have to pay, oh, yeah. pay attention. And, yeah, and, and yeah, no, I, he's a good price. Yeah, oh, ahead, I mean, it was sorry, interesting. I, no, that's all right. No, no, I, I, won, I won a contest on Memorial Day at Santa Anita in the first race. Uh, there was a horse that had run once on the turf. Uh, he was a, a full or a half to Oscar performance. You remember him, a real good stakes horse. And, and the race, it didn't look like much on paper. Um, and I want to say it was a sprint race. Now we're going long. So I went and watched the video because I'm thinking, you know, this horse has some pedigree. I watched the video and the horse was just never really comfortable in the race. Now he's going longer. He's going to be a huge price. And it's the kind of thing where you, with one bet, you could win the contest. And it was a buyback. So if I was wrong, I could have bought back in. I had opinions later. So I just bet it all on the horse at 20 to one and he came in and the contest was essentially over. Um, so there, there's that. 
there's just there's, when you have that situation where you and that's not something that the CAW guys are going to see. They're really sophisticated, but I don't, I don't think they're doing that. Uh, if they if they are, we're all in trouble. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of and that that happens rarely. But when it happens, it, it, look, this horse could have been a total bomb and run terrible, uh, but it was worth the risk because of the price. Yeah, you have to think long term, right? You're not with any particular 100%. result could yep. go good or bad. Nah, no um, question about that. So you, you talked about Breeders' Cup. You know, the big day cards, you know, like Travers Day at Saratoga or Derby Day. Do you kind of target those and, and maybe bet more than you would on a normal day? Or is it just another day at the races for you? Uh, obviously, Breeders' Cup, you're playing the Breeders' Cup betting challenge. but now, other other big days, big cards. No, I, I absolutely target those days, A, because I'm following those horses. I don't have to start from scratch if I'm just pulling up a card at, at, at Thistledown. Uh, I mean, I'm starting way behind, right? I, I got I to gotta look up everything if I'm going to do it right, and that's just so much harder to do. Yeah, I do target the big days. That's A lot of the contests are on big race days. Uh, which which is great, you know, and, and obviously the tracks like contests because that increases their handle. And there there are a lot of players in there that will fire. So yes, I, I would say uh, I will any you know if there, there's a contest on the Derby and the Preakness and the Belmont, I'm always playing them. Obviously Breeders Cup, Travers Day, I played their contest not very well, but I I did play it. Uh, I, I put myself in a position where I had a couple of outs in the Travers and just bet poorly. Um, but yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I love to play the big days. And and also, there it, there is some money. I mean, like, the Derby win prices every year are insane. I think we all know that, that, that that doesn't happen any other time, or it's just bizarre. And then this year at the Preakness, it was just mind-boggling. The prices that they were out there that day it was like, what is going on? It was like, I was, you know, what, how are these people betting on some of these horses? It should have been 90 to one and they were 10 to one. That only happens on those kind of days where you have, you have money in those pools that just don't, they're not going to be there any other day of the year. The good old days, like the good old days when there was only betting <laughs> at the track and you were going against a lot of local money and not computer teams, right? Yeah, those those you better get better adapt. <laughs> those days are gone. Like the computer guys have a monumental edge on the rest of us at this point. Um, so you know you've been at this game for a long time. You've been making buyer speed figures for a long time. You've been a a very active contest player, um, at least recently, and you know, they haven't been around as long, but. So through all that, what are the the big lessons that you've learned? What do you think are the the key things that uh, you'd want to share in terms of learning, maybe the hard way or or just over time, that would benefit some of the listeners? It, it, it's like anything that you do. Um, preparation leads to confidence, leads to results. Uh, and in this game, of course, preparation is one thing, but you got to learn it. And sometimes you will learn it the hard way. How do you prepare? What do you do? Like, I have a routine that when I'm playing a contest or a track that I, that I go through, I'll, I'll do an overview of, of the races. I'll just look through, is there anything the first time through that I'll be interested in? Then I'll, then I'll get formulator. I'll look at 
previous charts? Uh, is there a video I want to watch? Is there a workout I might be interested in? And I'll jot all of that down the second time through. And then the third time through is, is when I'll, whatever I've checked, like next to the four horse in the second race, I'll go look up what I think is going to be relevant to any play I might make. And, and, and the good news is because I've done it for a while, it's kind of streamlined. It doesn't take as much time as it would for somebody just starting out. I mean, you just sort of see things and you go, oh, uh, you know, as, as I, we talked about before the chessboard, you've seen this move before. And, and then you can say, all right, here's, here's what I'd like to do here. And then, and then the, the, the single biggest and most important, and I think any player would tell you this, is how are you going to bet your money uh, and, and find, find a horse or horses to frame bets around, um, whatever it is, whatever you're comfortable with, whatever your denomination is. Is it win bets? Is it exact as whatever it is? And, and then just go. And if you've done the work, you're going to bet with confidence. And inevitably, when something goes wrong in the race, you just got to say, hey, you know what? I put myself in the right position. I feel confident that I did the right thing. And you got beat. And you just you, you turn off your laptop or you go home and you try to do better the next time. But you can't. And it's it's hard. And But you can't let what just happened affect what's about to happen. If you do that, you're going to be in trouble. You shouldn't create a buyer hole in the press box, as Andy told us when he got DQ'd <laughs> a Gulfstream one one time. We've we've all been there. We, we've we've all felt yes. that uh, at various times. Yeah, I got DQ'd out of three thousand one time at, in Maryland. That actually, before I was ever writing any stories, I ended up writing a massive story for the local paper about the stewards. They were not happy with me at all after I wrote the story, uh, but I didn't write anything that wasn't untrue. It was a number of years later, I got to, I got to get even with the Maryland stewards for them stealing three thousand from me. <laughs> well, um, like we all have stories about steward decisions and DQs, and if you if you're on horse race Twitter or horse racing X. Um, it's every Saturday is filled with people complaining about some non-DQ or DQ by the steward. So nothing's changed in, in what thirty or forty years. No, right? <laughs> no, I'm in the I'm in the distinct minority on this, but because I've seen this, you know, written about it, experienced it, I think that they should adopt a completely new method of looking at that. No DQs ever. And if the jockey's causing trouble, suspend them, throw them out because there's, and I don't even think it's the steward's fault. I think it's just the job they're put in. I think it's impossible to make accurate, consistent decisions. So therefore, after a race is over and you think a jockey's caused trouble, why are you penalizing the betters and the owner and the trainer? Uh, penalize the jockey. Uh, and then you don't have to worry about and what they're tasked with is deciding what would have happened. Well, how can anybody know what would have happened in anything? Uh, I actually testified in a hearing one time in Harrisburg. I had a friend who owned, owned a horse who got disqualified in a big race. I told him, I said, man, you, I, I didn't like what happened to you. So I went out and testified in his, on his behalf. I mean, he wasn't going to win in the end in front of the, in front of the uh, racing commission. And, and the guy for the representative commission said, hey, isn't this just like football and basketball? I said, not at all. It's not even close. I mean, like a holding penalty is a holding penalty, but it doesn't affect the outcome of the game. 
there's no other sport where the result it's over and then they change the result. That doesn't happen. So yeah, if it were up to me, it would never happen again, but I got zero chance of that happening, unfortunately. Well, uh, uh, Tommy Massis, who's another guest um, on the podcast, he's been saying the same thing for years. No DQs. Um, yep. I, I kind of get it. I'm almost in that camp. But I, the thing I totally agree with what you said is it's much more important that you have strong escalating penalties for the right, bad rider behavior because that's the only thing that matters. If you can change the rider behavior, then you'll have you won't have many any decisions to make because they're not going to take the chances that um, they would take if they think they can get away with it like they do today. So I totally agree with that. The other thing is, you know, I think stewards can make a lot better decisions uh, when they have a day to rest and then come back on the next day or Monday morning or whatever and review the tapes and interview the jockeys and make a decision about what the jockey's intent was and whether or not they need to find them. They don't have to make the split second in a real-time decision right after a race where they're much more likely to screw it up. And, and you know, so, so to me, it's just a lot easier decision to make after the fact than in real time right after the race, too. So you're likely to get better decisions that way as well. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, look, I, again, I think stewards are just put in a situation that – is almost impossible uh, to come up with right answers. And look, I've known people, I, I don't doubt that they're trying to do the right thing. I, I just I just think the whole system is flawed, always has been flawed. And I'd like to just take the burden off the people up in the booth and just, you know, as Tommy said, and I, I, it, I, I've been telling my friends this for years. I said, let's just stop it, no more. And, and your suggestion is tremendous. Let's just wait till the next day, sit down, talk to the jockeys. Are they going to be people upset about this if it ever happens? And I don't anticipate it will, of course, because everybody's used to it. But the the whining and complaining isn't helping anybody now. And, you know, the last thing you want is somebody to get DQ'd out of it, like a score of a lifetime on something that most people would say, hey, really didn't affect the outcome of the race. And that that's that's my thing. It, it, impossible for them to know what would have happened. And that's the task they've been given. And I just think it's I just think it's wrong. And I've thought that. Uh, like almost from the moment I got into the game, I said, what, what is this? <laughs> I said, that isn't what I'm used to in other sports. Uh, in basketball, they, I guess the only time that might, the closest thing would be if um, a team makes a shot at the buzzer or miss uh, and they wave it off or they say it's good yep. and then they review it and they take it off or, or count it. Yeah. Um, and, and then yeah. the game's over and, uh, you know, the winner and losers changed, but, um, yeah, you know, that's a pretty that's, straight, straightforward review, right? You know, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Easy. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's not complicated. That's, I mean, that's right in front of you. Is, is the light on when the ball's out of the hands or is it not? And you, and when you can see that, because in real time, it's so difficult for officials. I was actually at a game, Villanova, Miami at Villanova uh, boys more than 20 years ago. Um, where a kid from Miami hit a three, was it at the buzzer or after the buzzer? And the referee, a great referee named Tim Higgins, the game is at Villanova. He calls it good and runs off the court before anybody can get near him. So Miami ends up winning the game, and Steve Lapis was the coach at Villanova. And I'm standing on opposite from him on the press row, and I'm looking at the replay on ESPN. Bill Raftery was doing the game, and I can see that the ball is still in his hands when the buzzer goes off. And so it should have been no good. They missed the call. 
they changed the rule in college basketball the following week where you could look at replays. That was the day they changed the rule. <laughs> All right. So one last or one of the last questions I like to ask is if you had the power to change something in the racing game, which obviously no one does, including you or I, but if you could just wave your magic wand to make it a better game, what's the change you would make? Well, I've already gone on the steward, so I'll, I'll do another one. That, that, that's the one if I had one I would do. Probably the other one would be to go out of anybody who's running a racetrack or a circuit, be as transparent as possible about literally everything. Uh, there's just too much that or, or we can't talk about that or we can't tell you that or we can't show you that. Um, I, I think it was Mike who was on talking about the, I think it was with you talking about the, uh, the, the paramutual, the whole system, right? Like it, 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 there's issues with it. I think players need to know, you know, why are these last minute odds changes happening? You show us the printout. If somebody wants to see it and say, Hey, you know, it, this has how much money came in. This is when it came in. It, transparency to me. I mean, look, as a journalist for as long as I was, that was critical for me. I wanted to know what the facts were. So yeah, if you can get racetracks and racetrack management to be more transparent with their, with their players, AKA their customers, that would be great. Yeah. uh, uh, Amen. I I totally agree. And there's so many aspects of the game where that comes into play, including the stewards, um, right? Uh, have them held accountable both for their decisions and explaining their decisions. So um, we're starting to see a little bit of that now. Um, You know, we're lagging way behind, you know, other parts of the world, but at least they've set an example and maybe we can start moving in that direction in a lot of ways. Um, Anything else before we wrap it up that we haven't got to that you wanted to get in or mention? Um, This is it. The last chance. Well, no, it's it's been a lot of fun, Chris. It's it's funny how you you know you say something that triggers a memory for me and brings back a story, and that's kind of what it is. It's just it's, we've all had these experiences at the track, and I remember, you know, I, as I said, I covered college basketball and horse racing. I, I'm very very fortunate to work at a great writer's paper for 33 years, um, and <laughs> to get to do the two things that I love to get to cover it. And people would always ask me, you know, if you could only do one, you know, basketball or horse racing, and I love them both, what would it be? I said, well, that's an easy call. It would definitely be the racetrack because they let you bet out there. Uh, and I, that's <laughs> part of it. The challenge, the challenge of that as, as, yeah, that's why I got into the game to start with. Uh, you know, I learned about the game after I, after I became a better, I read about the history and, you know, read all the great writers who had, had written about it and, and learned so much over time. But yeah, it, it was, it, and again, I, I love, I love basketball, but it's no contest. It would be the racetrack for me. Yeah. It's still the greatest, at least skill-based gambling game. There is for sure. It's still horse racing, even with all the problems we're having and have had in the past. It's the greatest game, at least in my opinion. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I love taking people who have never been and, and showing them around and yeah, just showing the fundamentals of how to play. Actually, our neighbors across the street had never been to Saratoga, so we went out and spent a day with them and in mid-August uh, played a pick six badly, but they, they, they didn't know how badly because they'd only been at the track once. <laughs> they, they didn't know how clueless I was that day. But yeah, I love that part of it. Take them around to, to meet the riders and different people that you know. Uh, and here's an exact here's here's how it's done and on days where you happen have to be happen to be sharp it's great for people to see what see what it's like when you actually put some money in your pocket yeah we all have to try to get new people in, involved in the game and and try to keep the current people involved so um and that's definitely one of the ways to get them out of the track and experience it firsthand yeah and, all right well that's, it's it's current yeah, go ahead, Chris. It's kind of a foreign concept for no, people fun. these days, right? They just don't go as much. I mean, they're just, we know about the attendance. I mean, and I, and even for people like us, you can play on your phone, you can play on your laptop. It's, everything has totally changed about the game in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, and the tracks are disappearing left and right. So there's fewer places, uh, uh, fewer people that live anywhere near a track, right? Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Uh, so, yeah, I just hope we can keep the great ones around Del Mars and Santa Anita. And Saratoga and Churchill and, and just the Pimlico and the places that you know we've all grown up with and that I've been to so many times. I, I just I hope they're there for as long as we all are. Yeah, and a couple of those you named uh, wouldn't be shocking at all if they weren't. Unfortunately, so let's let's hope that isn't the case. Um, well, that that about wraps it up. So I really appreciate this great discussion, Dick. Um, uh, are you since you're not heading to the BCBC. I won't be able to touch base with you live there, but good luck in the contest. I hope you finish second. I'd like to see us being the exact <laughs> in the BCBC, just like we were in the contest last week. That would be great. Well, well, Chris, um, I, if you can guarantee, if you can guarantee that right now, I'll take it. I'll be happy to take that. <laughs> that, would, that would be that would be fine. But if I'm <laughs> if I'm close, I will be I will be firing. But yeah, it's it, look, it's our Super Bowl. We're really looking forward to the first weekend in November for sure. All right. Well, I want to thank you once again for um, being on the show. And I want to thank all the listeners out there. And may you boldly go where no horse player has gone before. <laughs>